Hello and welcome to The Bulletin with UBS on Monocle 24. Each week the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in finance take you beyond the numbers and hype, right to the heart of the big issues of the day. This week we're discussing a new white paper brought to you courtesy of the UBS Sustainability and Impact Institute. The report is titled The Green Inflection Point – Driving Decarbonisation of the Real Economy. The paper sets out to identify key actions that the financial sector can take to accelerate decarbonisation of the real economy, to highlight the progress made so far on establishing frameworks, standards and cross-sectoral collaboration, and to spotlight expert opinion on next steps that can drive and build on decarbonisation efforts across sectors. Unpacking those themes for us today are Francis Condon, Head of Thematic Engagement at UBS Asset Management, and Adam Gustafson, who works for the data science team within UBS AM. Both are also members of the UBS Sustainability and Impact Institute. Francis, Adam, welcome both to the programme. Before we get stuck into the white paper and its findings, remind us maybe first of all what the SI Institute is and what it seeks to do. Francis? The SI Institute is a, an initiative within UBS Asset Management drawing on thought leaders really on sustainability across all of the business activities of, of UBS. So we come together from asset management, from wealth management, from our investment banking arm, our global banking arm and various other parts of, uh, of UBS to bring thought together to particular sustainability topics. We've done that over the last few months. We've published so far about three or four white papers. Well, yes, and let's dip in then to the, this latest one, uh, the Green Inflection Point, of course. This was published on sort of decarbonisation day, which happened during sort of COP27, didn't it? And Adam, tell us a bit about what the report's seeking to do, because I guess the, the idea here, the overarching idea, is that the value and importance of transitioning towards net zero, etc., that's pretty much a narrative that, that most stakeholders understand. But I guess the report's trying to look at meaningful movement and what actually needs to be done, the, the mechanics, the nuts and bolts of it, to move this not just forward, but forward at scale. Is that kind of what the starting point was? Yeah, no, that, that's absolutely right. And I think this we're at an interesting point right now where we've seen this explosion in financial sustainable activities. And, and maybe it's it's a good time to stop a bit and reflect over the environment and, and, and make sure that our efforts are indeed making a difference and making sure that we are pushing in the right direction going forward. So the report is, is trying to question what we do today and make sure that we are expanding on, on things that work and perhaps take a slightly different direction where we think that our activities are not making a difference. So it really tries to get to the bottom of what activities are driving real decarbonisation in the real economy? What makes a difference and how can a financial system play a more important and meaningful role? Adam, then if we look at the financial sector specifically, what are some of the, the tools in the arsenal that the financial sector has to drive its part of that process forwards? Because obviously it's in the context, as Francis has outlined, of this much broader coalition with various stakeholders at different levels. What does the financial sector's resources to engage here, what, what do they actually look like? Well, in the report, we break it down into to three main activities. So we're talking about 
funding and providing primary capital to, to projects that need to, to grow and expand and, and um, accelerate. We're talking about investing and advising. And Francis and I, we are part of the Institute, but we also belong to the asset management arm. So we are primarily focusing on the investing side of things, but it always requires the whole financial ecosystem and everything that has to do with financial products. And perhaps I can also touch on one topic that I think is important when we talk about this, and that's the motivation behind this. And that is relevant for both the funding side of things, but especially the, the investing side. So I think that we're coming from a state where we, we focus mostly on ethical preferences. Uh, so sustainability obviously started with us excluding certain sectors that our clients don't want to be associated with. That could be nuclear weapons, uh, tobacco, alcohol, coal activities, such things. And that also includes this tilting approach where you're trying to underweight these sectors in your portfolio. But I think that the two venues that we find most interesting going forward is where sustainability drives real financial returns because that's what we're hired for. We are hired for delivering financial returns and it's important that sustainability is linked to that. And then we have a subset of clients that are interested in impact. So can they leverage their invested assets to drive real impact going forward? And in best case scenario, these things are obviously linked as well. So if we can make a difference in the companies that we invest in, that should ideally deliver financial returns too. But if we look at a lot of the, the financial products that are already at the market today, it's probably worthwhile asking that question. What is the real why behind this? What is the motivation for including these sustainability factors? And is it making a difference? Is it delivering financial returns or is it making an impact? And if it doesn't do either, what is actually the point of, of that sustainability angle in this product? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. Francis, let me ask you a bit about scale, because I guess one of the challenges implicit in all of this is to address the urgent challenge in a timely fashion. You know, there is not one resource that is, is definitely scarce is the time available to address this challenge, given its nature. How important is it to identify and then I guess for particularly your clients who are super interested in being purposeful and intentional with their investing to support in innovations, initiatives that can scale, whether that's across geographies or just at pace, that must be a, a key consideration. It's part of this fit of different of different actors. So we need to see action happening at different parts of the of the sort of political, social, economic system. Uh, we need to see things happening through uh, governments and through corporations and financial sector firms. And that incorporates a whole range of action. So you might, one example might be across the investor space, something like the Net Zero Asset Managers Initiative. Uh, it's 291 asset managers accounting for 66 trillion US dollars of assets under management have all committed to, net, to bring our, our portfolios onto a net zero trajectory, interim by 2030 and ultimately by, by 2050. It's a very high level target. There's lots of work going on in terms of how do you actually implement that. And it works a lot around decarbonization of portfolios, but you have to get deeper as well. You have to get deeper into how do the individual firms that we invest in actually decarbonize. So, we need to be having conversations and we are having conversations with companies 
through our engagement programs around their, their ambition, their, their, the rate at which they are seeking to uh, take carbon out of their operations, out of their supply chains, out of their products. So we're looking, we need to see those sorts of actions uh, happening, but really underlying all of this is the credibility of corporate strategy. So once companies have made a commitment to decarbonisation, how robust is their approach to actually achieving that? And that gets into the, the fundamental, it may be sm it's smaller scale, but it's a multiple of actions that gets into questions around operations, around technology choices, around how do you, and how do you design out carbon emissions from your direct footprint, from your energy purchases, from your upstream supply chains and from your products. So it needs a range of actions across the system. Well, yeah, and that, that word system, I think, is important, isn't it? And Adam, let me ask you a bit about a sort of the necessity to take a systemic approach. There are so many complexities here. There are all sorts of interdependencies, causalities that run through this space. And they're all potential drivers of change, I guess, both across specific issues that need to be addressed and then the, the wider ecosystem of all these interconnected challenges. How difficult is it? I guess just to almost get to almost get started, the challenges seem so profound. I can imagine that there are lots of stakeholders. It might seem almost intimidatingly so. How do you go about ensuring that you're ready and well positioned to tackle a challenge on that scale? Now, it is, of course, a bit overwhelming when you first look at it. But I think it's important that you take a, a company by company approach if you are looking at corporates or, or perhaps a sovereign by sovereign approach if you're looking at more country level type investments and just focus on materiality. So let's take a, a cement producer. Most of the emissions are, of course, within the production itself. And, and that is fairly straightforward to focus on that, even if you have interdependencies there too. So if you want to electrify a cement plant, well, then you need the grid to be green. But I think that, that having this materiality hat on all the time, focus on what's most important for that specific situation, it allows you to limit the scope a bit and, and focus your efforts. But you're absolutely right. All these independencies, uh, the system thinking is critical. But as long as you cover most of the material emissions, I think you're on the right track. And unfortunately, we all have limited resources, limited time span, and you just have to make sure that you are tackling the most important things first. Well, yeah, let me, Francis, bring you in on that point. It's really interesting. That's a good example that, that Adam cited there, you know, a cement producer, for example. If we look at specific super emission intensive sectors, there are all sorts of other pressures acting. There's the immediacy of this climate crisis challenge, but there are also regulatory pressures. There's a completely different attitude in terms of public scrutiny as well over the last few years, which presumably is very, very welcome. How do you ensure or how do we all ensure that engagement with all the stakeholders where the stakes are so high in those sectors, for example, that that engagement remains very constructive and progressive? How, how do we how do we do that? That's another challenge, I guess. Yeah. And there's a, you know, there's a range of sectors that account for a very high proportion of, of carbon emissions. They, we have carbon intensive sectors, which represent significant proportion of the carbon emissions that we all kind of globally account for. And one of the key ways of, of connecting to them is this idea of, you know, what impact can we have? What impact can, can a company have? So in our engagement programs, what we're looking to do is we're looking 
to encourage improvement in companies. We're looking to enable growth through the financing that we can bring as a, as a financial firm more generally. And so a lot of so the engagement is, is around expectations. It's around having a, a realistic dialogue with companies around how they can respond to the climate challenge, understanding the tools that they have in place, uh, their existing operations, new technologies, capital expenditure cycles, and things like that, and bringing investor voice and encouraging companies to understand how they can best approach carbon emissions from the point of view of their operations and also their their products and services. So we see ourselves, we see the investor voice as as a key voice, but amongst a whole set of stakeholders in terms of how companies can move forward on climate. Well, yeah, and let's talk about moving forward and and the future. What I find reassuring is the eloquence and the engagement that you guys are are clearly bringing to this, even just the way that you talk about the report and about the the opportunities implicit in the challenge that that we're discussing. We're fortunate enough, we've also heard from specific UBS visionaries, for example, who are doing specific work in this space, organisations like Climeworks or Notpla that we've heard from on this programme going back even over a couple of years who are very immediately addressing the the, the carbon challenge. But would you characterise your views on the whole space as being optimistic? It strikes me that you you both are optimistic about both the the facility that that we have to to, to meet this challenge and the the progress modest as it may be that we've already made. Would you would you characterise your your attitude as as optimistic? Adam, let me throw that to you first of all. Are you optimistic that we can we can rise to the challenge? Of course, I think we have to stay optimistic, but we also have to recognize that things have not been moving forward at required pace so far. So change is desperately needed, but obviously you need to stay optimistic in this. And if we look at the financial ESG SI up until now, I think that that will drastically change. And when we look at the opportunity sets, slightly different going forward. But SI, climate investing, and decarbonization is obviously not going anywhere. It will be one of the key focuses within, uh, within the financial system going forward, and especially for us here at, at UBS. So we have to stay optimistic. And I think just the nature of climate investing, if we call it that, has left a lot of opportunities untouched up until now. The report is talking a lot about reinvesting in these heavy polluters and drive change there. And I think that's an opportunity that hasn't really been explored so far. So I I definitely see a lot of interesting opportunities going forward. And uh, I I think that that the situation is still accelerating and it's not too late. But uh, let's also be honest, it's, it's not looking good right now. Yeah, a profound challenge. Francis, would you go along with that? You know, as in a sort of a a grade, I don't know, grade B so far, not bad, but so much more still to be done? Uh, More to be done. And the International Energy Agency talks about how we've got globally about 80% of the technologies in place to meet a 1.5 degree pathway by 2030. So we have the the opportunities, we have the, the ways and the means it seems that a lot of the challenge at the moment is about how to bring all of that together in a way that works for a variety of stakeholders. So there's complexity. Uh, There's complexity amongst all of those sort of interdependent actors around governments and uh, the business sector and consumers and, and investors. And there's still work to be done in terms of how can we uh, bring that and move forward. 
Francis, let me just ask you, I guess one of the important things that reports like this and the work that you guys are generally engaged with, one of the really important angles of it is in agreeing not just, you know, measurements, common standards of, of measurement, common targets, but sometimes even common definitions and agreed definitions because the space has adapted so quickly. Even if we're talking about greenness or greening, it is important, isn't it, to make sure that when we use these phrases, we all know exactly what we what we mean. Yes, indeed, Tom. The way we've approached it in the paper is we've talked about the greenness of a portfolio being uh, how an investor aligns their investment holdings with their own values and preferences. We're also recognizing that that has a more limited effect in terms of decarbonizing the real economy and recognizing that the climate crisis is not something that can be solved with a top-down approach alone and that it requires a mobilization at a, at a much more fundamental level. It's that mobilization that we, we refer to as greening in the paper, we talk about the state of play, an investment portfolio moving from greenness to greening. And that's why we came up with the title of the paper as the green inflection point. Huge thanks to you both for being with us. That's Francis Condon and Adam Gustafson. And that brings us to the end of this edition of the programme. Do head over to UBS.com to find out how UBS can help you. While you're there, why not search Green Inflection Point and dive into the report and other resources courtesy of the SI Institute. You can listen to this show again at monocle.com. That's where you can join the club by subscribing to Monocle magazine. You can also follow the programme wherever you get your podcasts. This is The Bulletin with UBS on Monocle 24. I'm Tom Edwards. Thanks for listening. As a firm providing wealth management services to clients, UBS Financial Services, Inc. offers investment advisory services in its capacity as an SEC-registered investment advisor and brokerage services in its capacity as an SEC-registered broker-dealer. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, differ in material ways, and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements. It is important that you understand the ways in which we conduct business and that you carefully read the agreements and disclosures that we provide to you about the products or services we offer. For more information, please review Client Relationship Summary provided at UBS.com forward slash Relationship Summary or ask your UBS Financial Advisor for a copy. 